Hey everyone, before we start the episode, I wanted to share some exciting news. We have a YouTube channel now. We started posting our episodes with some cool images and videos, so you should definitely go check it out. You can find us at On Wildlife Podcast, and don't forget to subscribe. Now let's get into the episode. Hey everyone, before I start the episode, I just want to remind you that we now have On Wildlife merch. Go to onwildlife.org and click shop now to buy On Wildlife shirts, stickers, magnets, and more. Also, the survey's still up. Please take it if you have the chance because I'd love to hear your feedback about the podcast. You also have a chance to win a free sticker. Okay, enjoy the episode. Hello, welcome to On Wildlife. I'm your host, Alex Ray. On this podcast, we bring the wild to you. We take you on a journey into the life of a different animal every week, and I guarantee you you're going to come out of here knowing more about your favorite animal than you did before. The animal that we're going to be learning about today lives in a place where you wouldn't even think life could exist. Now, I barely know about these ecosystems, which is why I interviewed Dr. Nuno Samoz, who is a marine researcher in the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico. Some of the stuff that he'll tell you is going to blow your mind. So make sure you bring your flashlight because we're heading under the water in caves to talk about predatory cave shrimp. The specific type of cave shrimp that we're going to be talking about today is called Creaceria morlii. And usually I give a little background info about these animals, but outside of what Nuno and his team have done, there's not much research on these guys. That's why we're going to jump right into the interview. But before we talk about cave shrimp, let's learn a little bit more about our guest. As most of the viewers or listeners uh, may already perceive, I'm not uh, I'm, I'm not American. I'm, I'm not British. English is not my my first language. I was born in Mozambique, and eventually moved to Portugal, where I studied biology, and very soon uh, knew that I I wanted to study something related to marine biology, the, the sea and the coast and so on, and so I did. And eventually, um, I got a position in Mexico as a professor and researcher. And I started doing my research on uh, a little bit of aquaculture, on ornamental uh, species, marine ornamental species for the aquarium trade. And then I moved on into the ecology of some of those species in the coasts of the Mexican Caribbean and some of the coral reefs in the Gulf of Mexico. But how did he get interested in cave shrimp? I was in Portugal uh, on a sabbatical leave when I received an email from a student saying, hey, I want to work with you guys. You are doing fantastic work. What about if we work with shrimp? And I said, well, this is the right place you come. We work with shrimp. And they say, well, but I want to work with cave shrimps. And I kept trying to convince him to work with some fantastic biological models of uh, sea shrimps. And he kept saying, no, what I want to do is work with cave shrimps. And eventually, he convinced me to study these cave shrimps. And that was like opening a Pandora box. Well, that's amazing. It must be so cool to actually go into the field and and view these uh, shrimp up close. 
Now, many of you are probably most familiar with eating shrimp instead of seeing them in the wild. Have you ever thought about what part of the shrimp you're actually eating? What you eat when you eat a shrimp is basically uh, what I call a predator avoidance uh, strategy. So all that muscle uh, that you eventually eat with mayonnaise or whatever other recipe that you use is basically uh, the shrimps don't use all of that muscle except when they are uh, faced with a predator and they do their tail flips to uh, just get out of the way, okay? So all of this muscle is used to escape uh, a predator. These aren't just any type of shrimp, though. They're cave shrimp. Nuno is going to set the scene for where these animals live. Imagine if you're in a cave and suddenly the cave is filled up with water and it happens that you can breathe because you just bring some scuba diving equipment. So some of these caves are completely dark. You need to bring all the lightning with you because there's no electricity facility that switch on the lamps and switched off. So you basically need to bring your own lightning and you also need to bring your, obviously, the air you're going to breathe. The, the scenery is beautiful, but it's devoid of life. And when you start looking closer, you see that actually there's a tiny little thing running around there. Hey, what, what, what was that? And then you start fine-tuning your eyesight and you kind of adapt your focus attention into a particular scale of things. And some of the, came, some of the caves come alive. How is there life in a cave where it's almost completely dark? Nuno has three metrics that explain this, which are that there are a small amount of species, a small amount of individuals, and the animals that live there are physically small. And for me, this is the indication of what I called a, a bottleneck of energy flow into this uh, trophic web on, on this kind of, a, yeah, the, the web of, you know, who eats what, who eats who, and so on. So this trophic web is somehow strangled. Is There's a bottleneck. There's not enough energy to keep the pump moving. You know, you know, most of the habitats are just, you know, energy flowing from one uh, from one stage to the next one. Like, I don't know, like one of these, uh, when you go into a mall and you have this kind of electric uh, stairs, they just go on and on all the time. So imagine a tiny little electric stair, very, very tiny, that doesn't go very high and goes very slowly. I mean, if you look at it, you'll say, oh, it's it stopped. Now it's moving, but it's moving so slow because there's not many energy going into it. And why? Well, there's no light. And light is the, the engine. Light is the fuel. And you have no light. So whatever can grow under the sunlight will eventually be transported into the dark. But most importantly, they provide energy to the system by uh, runoff. So you will have this, you know, all the dust and powders and dead leaves and dead, I don't know, insects and bones of this and seeds of that. That's uh, that's so amazing that such a small amount of just dead organic matter can support an entire ecosystem uh, in a cave, which is, it's just amazing. As you can tell, these caves are really cool. 
So let's take a quick break, and when we get back, we're going to talk about what actually lives inside the caves. that I'm going to recognize on this week's episode of Notable Figures in Science is Dr. Luis Alvarez, who was an American physicist. He mainly worked in the field of optics and cosmic rays, and he's well known for helping discover the east-west effect. He also researched a lot about how electrons and atoms work, which helped him figure out that titrium, which is an element, is radioactive. This may not seem like a big deal, but this is one of the ways that we're able to get energy from nuclear power. Because of all of his great work, he won the Nobel Prize in 1968. His accomplishments have made a great impact on the world as we know it. If you want to learn more about Dr. Alvarez or this series, check out onwildlife.org. So we know about their environment. Let's learn more about these awesome creatures. Its, uh, its name is Criaceria morlii. It's a palemonid shrimp, which is just, let's say, a, a brand of shrimps. And it's a large one compared to the other shrimps. It's not as large as the shrimps that you see in the supermarket, like the penne shrimps that you tend to eat on salads and so on. But it's 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 an animal that you you kind of relate to your hand. And and that animal is basically every time we see them, they're on the move. They're just kind of blindly, uh, you know, running around the bottom. Kind of a a bullish, bullying, shrimp-like figure because he has these two massive keelers, these two massive uh, clamps on each side. It's... It's like a boxing shrimp. It's like, you know, these boxers that I all the time with uh, the arms kind of ready to punch. These shrimp are also blind. So how do they find their food? So you have two types of shrimps. Well, you have three if you consider mysids some shrimps. And the mysids and the, the attid shrimps, they are indeed completely blind. So if you observe them with a microscope, uh, you will see where the eye used to be that there, there's only a very minute reminiscence of what an eye could be. Whilst if you look at our predatory shrimp, or that, what I call the, the jaguar shrimp, they, they are blind. They don't have eyes, no. But they have the, some, some eyes that have been uh, with some atrophy. They've been atrophiated. They, they're, they're not, you know, functionalized, but you see that there's some reminiscence of what an eye used to be uh, in, in the areas. So we then set up an experiment. And being in Mexico, uh, we don't, we're, you know, we're not Harvard or, you know, one of these uh, nice universities with a lot of money. So we bought some uh, infrared cameras that are used for you know home security not very good not very good resolution and we just put one aquarium complete darkness and we filmed them with this infrared what you see is that there is one 
prey shrimp and one predator shrimp, large predator shrimp. And suddenly, this tiny little shrimp on the wall of the aquarium starts swimming in the water column and inadvertently, without knowing, bumps into the antenna of the predator shrimp. And man, that's amazing. I mean, you would see this other large shrimp jumping like a jaguar. You know, when you see these lionesses in the savannas of Africa jumping into a poor gnu that's going to be their next meal, this guy just jumps and with his right killer in a fantastic precision, complete darkness, just grabs the other shrimp. He's not seeing anything. It just perceives a touch in one atina. And with that perception, he can, well, I assume that he could not make a calculation like you and me and, and the listener, but he could understand first the direction or from where the movement is coming, the velocity of that movement, and therefore is able to do the calculations to just extend, jump ahead, extend his right arm. It's not an arm, but whatever, his uh, periopod, and eventually just grabs the other shrimp. It's amazing that these shrimp don't even need to see to precisely take down their prey. Because we know that this is a predator, I was interested to figure out how important they are to the ecosystems that they live in. I think that Criaceria morlii, the jaguar predator shrimp, is what it's as amazing as it sounds is one of the uh, top predators of the cave system and you have other predators you have the the white lady which is a, a white uh, fish as, as the name suggests and you have the blind eel which is another powerful predator but the blind eel for example i think i saw like three in all my life under the cave so they're there but they're they're very rare. Uh, the white ladies they are common, but you'll never see more than three, five. I don't know. If you see twelve in a cave, you go like, "Wow, have you seen that twelve white ladies? Amazing!" <laughs> While these shrimps, depending on where you are, because again, there's each cenote is, is is a different world. Sometimes you go into a cenote and you'll see I don't know thirty, fifty of these uh, animals just you know, running around their marathons, their inexplicable uh, continuous marathon. So I think that the presence of this shrimp kind of helps equilibrate uh, other species that exist there. Okay, so now we know that they're important, but are they struggling right now? They're endemic to the peninsula. They don't live anywhere else. If you want to see these guys, you have to go and visit us in Yucatan uh, Peninsula. So for that reason, they are listed as a potentially endangered species. Fortunately enough, not at this moment, but it's protected. And under the Mexican law, they are protected. You have this very complex system. When it rains in place A, three hours later, six hours later, the water level on a cenote five kilometers away will also raise, although it didn't rain in that area. So the entire aquifer of the peninsula is connected. If you dig wells and you connect the surface with the aquifer, anything in the surface will go into the aquifer. If it's organic matter, no worries. We have the shrimps and the isopods and the mysids and all 
the bacteria and fungi that in the caves that will eventually take care of that energy and transform that into other forms of life. The problem is when you have, you know, chemicals, you have uh, uh, heavy metals, you have uh, compounds that are not organic. So we have very strong evidence that what is the, the, the city centers induce um, create a lot of these chemicals that eventually permeate through the rock into the aquifer. And it's exactly the same aquifer that we're drinking, that we're, you know, uh, giving water to our plants uh, and so on and so on. So you have a very big problem of uh, public health, human health. That just shows you that pollution doesn't only impact animals, but it also affects us. So what can we do to help? So one of the ways you can help the system is that if you go on holidays, on a vacations to the Yucatan Peninsula, you select those cenotes that demonstrate to have uh, a sustainable approach to their touristic exploitation. There are many, many cenotes that are running very well. They take very good care of the system. and. Perhaps those will end up being slightly more expensive or slightly more uh, far away or something like that. But uh, we're working on a platform that will tell you, look, you can go and visit 100 cenotes, but these 20 ones here are well managed. They are managed towards a sustainable way where you'll have the minimal impact on the vegetation and the underwater fauna, including the... The, the shrimps that you mentioned that we've been talking about. So I believe that being a responsible tourist is a way to help this. Uh, another way to help is to support initiatives that will make the persons that depend on these cenotes to live better. And this is kind of a broad answer to your question, but most of these cenotes are in rural areas where the local villagers or, or the villages that live nearby, they you'd be surprised. Most of these people are, you know, on the brink of, I wouldn't call misery, but they are certainly very poor. So they see the cenotes and the touristic exploitation of the cenotes or whatever other activity that may have a damage towards the cenote, like work on a pig farm or I don't know, uh, work on whatever other activity that can have an impact. And if they don't have any other alternative, they will keep working on the pig farm and they will be upset with you if you come and say that the pig farm should close. Or they will continue to do agriculture and use pesticides that will eventually go into the aquifer. Or they will open up that cenote and they will charge you uh, 20 cents for you to participate in the cenote. So, our group from Senotiando, we're proposing initiatives that inform the tourists, not the mass tourism. That is difficult to inform. But one of the reasons I'm in this podcast is exactly not only to talk about the biology of a fantastic species like the jaguar predator shrimp, but also to raise awareness on, on these ecosystems and the problems that they face. And we're working with some communities to promote sustainable tourism. 
So instead of paying 20 cents, maybe you can pay, I don't know, $2 or $20. And that will make a difference. That will surely make a difference because you're keeping a good management, best practices approach to do tourism in the Senat. That goes through, you know, doing carrying capacity studies, increasing the the alternatives. It's not only the Senate, there's other things you can do, you know, enjoy the local um, the local food and stay in the local house. It's what we call ecotourism. And I know it's not for everybody, but I don't know. I assume that the listeners to your podcast are not the average Joe, citizen Joe going around. <laughs> not not what I'm trying to say is that not many people is interested on you know, endangered species. So uh, this is a particular one and is just a representative of what I would say an endangered habitat, which is the Senat. Yeah, which are the Senat. Yeah, and, and you brought up so many great points and, and it's you've shown that it's such a complicated issue because there's so many different types of people involved and some people rely on these um, activities for their livelihoods. And um, yeah, so practicing responsible tourism is is an awesome way to to help out. So Nuno, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. I learned so much, and I'm just really glad that you were able to share your knowledge with all of us. Thank you, Alex. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, if you have uh, the possibility, just uh... I would like people to know our project, senotiando.mx. I'll I'll provide you with the link so you can eventually uh, add that. Uh, Any help is welcome. We collaborate with a lot of institutions from the National Geographic uh, to, you know, academic institutions and so on. So coming to this podcast has been wonderful. It's been kind of uh, difficult to tell you all of this in my you know clunky english but i hope i didn't make too many mistakes and you enjoyed this thanks so much alex been a pleasure thank you i absolutely enjoyed and that link is going to be on our website nuno taught me so much about these amazing creatures and the ecosystems that they live in and like he said these cave ecosystems are extremely delicate and they're being hurt by people right now This is why it's important to support organizations that protect cave organisms. You should absolutely go check out Cenotiando and Biodiversidad Marina de Yucatan, which are organizations that Nuno is a part of. Thank you so much for coming on this adventure with me as we explored the world of the predatory cave shrimp. You can find the sources that we used for this podcast and links to organizations that we reference at onwildlife.org. You can also email us with any questions at onwildlife.podcast at gmail.com. And you can follow us on Instagram at on underscore wildlife and on TikTok at onwildlife. Don't forget to tune in next Wednesday for another awesome episode. And that's On Wildlife. You've been listening to On Wildlife with Alex Ray. On Wildlife provides general educational information on various topics as a public service, which should not be construed as professional, financial, real estate, tax, or legal advice. These are our personal opinions only. Please refer to our full disclaimer policy on our website for full details.